2: Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SUP China. Each week, we bring you a roundup from the world of business in China from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news, as well as interviews with Caixin global reporters and editors. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And I'm Ada Shen in Paris. Alibaba seeks $13 billion in Hong Kong listing, young students learn about drones and gene editing, and American poultry gets new wings in the Chinese market. Here's your news.
1: China's cabinet is relaxing financial requirements for some infrastructure projects in its latest bid to prop up growth as the world's second largest economy continues to slow. The state council has said that it will cut the minimum capital ratio requirement for ports and shipping infrastructure projects from 25% to 20% of the total investment. The ratios for highways, railways, environmental protection facilities, and social service infrastructure projects may also be reduced by as much as 5% on a case-by-case basis. To receive the lower initial investment requirement, projects must have a clear expectation of investment returns, a reliable revenue source, and manageable risks, the State Council said. The decision followed a series of pro-growth measures issued by the government to address downward pressure on the economy.
2: Tech-savvy coffee brand Luckin has withdrawn a lawsuit against arch-rival Starbucks, ending a year-long spat sparked when Luckin accused the U.S. company of monopolistic practices in China. The news came after Luckin reported soaring revenues in the third quarter up six-fold from a year ago to $215 million. Last year, Luckin sued Starbucks for allegedly violating Chinese antitrust laws, The rapidly expanding Chinese company complained it had been rejected by several commercial property owners that had signed exclusive cooperation agreements with Starbucks. At the time, Starbucks dismissed Luckin's claim as marketing hype. New York-listed Luckin aims to have 4,500 stores in China by the end of this year, a figure that would put it ahead of Starbucks' presence in the country. Its rapid growth owes much to huge product discounts offered to customers as part of what it calls a money burning strategy.
1: China lifted its four year ban on U.S. poultry shipments, a small sign of trade deal progress at a time when agriculture purchases have become a sticking point in negotiations. American exports to the Asian country are projected to top 1 billion U.S. dollars annually, according to U.S. officials. Shares of chicken producer Pilgrim's Pride jumped nearly 5%, and Sanderson Farms rose more than 6% last week. A deal over poultry has been among advanced discussions between the nations as they negotiate a partial trade deal. Earlier this month, the U.S. Department of Agriculture said it would remove curbs on Chinese poultry shipments.
2: Internet regulators in Shanghai shut down Chinese news website Business Times after it refused to comply with an official order to change its name and cease so-called unauthorized reporting activities. Regulators previously claimed it was operating without press credentials. After the outlet did not follow an initial order, the Cyberspace Administration of China cut off the company's website access. Only then did the company express willingness to cooperate, a government announcement said. The outlet's Chinese name is similar to that of several others, including the once influential Chinese Business Post, shuttered by the government in 2008 after it published an investigation into a state bank that was said to be inaccurate.
1: With the social unrest in Hong Kong dragging on for more than five months and showing no signs of ending anytime soon, more and more people are planning to move their assets out of Hong Kong or have already done so. Another Asian financial center, Singapore, is being seen as a natural alternative destination. Multiple banks in Hong Kong have received inquiries from clients requesting the opening of accounts in Singapore with wait times for appointments of as long as 2 months. Goldman Sachs recently estimated that as much as 4 billion US dollars moved from Hong Kong to Singapore as of August. In the past, Hong Kong has been a go to destination for wealthy Chinese. But in the future, Singapore may be the first choice for some, said Chi Man Kwan, founder and CEO of Hong Kong based asset manager Raffles Family
2: Office. Chinese students should learn about quantum computing, drones, military equipment artificial intelligence, and even gene editing based on a new national list of book recommendations for elementary, middle, and high school libraries issued by the Ministry of Education. A quarter of the list of 7,000 books focuses on science, technology, engineering, and math subjects, though it further breaks down this field into specializations such as agricultural and environmental sciences, industrial technology, transport and logistics, and aerospace. Among the titles is a book on CRISPR, the commonly used DNA editing technique, which is recommended for kids in middle and elementary schools. It's among roughly 20 titles on genetic research, a discipline mired in controversy in China after a Shenzhen-based scientist shocked the world last year with claims he had altered the DNA of two human babies. The list also includes seven titles on quantum science, 50 entries categorized under military affairs, and 50 on aerospace. Those totals are dwarfed by 2,000 literary titles, more than 1,000 under culture, pedagogy, physical education, 700 under history and geography, 300 on industrial technology, and 200 on communist ideology and philosophy.
1: Australia has approved a Chinese government-backed $1 billion takeover of infant formula group Bellamy's Australia, but with conditions to head off a domestic backlash. Following a unanimous recommendation by Australia's Foreign Investment Review Board that the takeover was not contrary to the national interest, the bid by China Yo Dairy was given the green light. Conditions include that a majority of its directors be Australian resident citizens, that the company headquarters remain in Australia for at least 10 more years, and that it spend at least $8 U.S. million to establish or improve milk formula processing facilities in Victoria. China's appetite for Australian milk formula has drawn concerns that a takeover of Bellamy's would create a supply gap. It also comes at a sensitive period in relations between China and Australia. Two weeks ago, Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison and Chinese Premier Li Keqiang met on the sidelines of the ASEAN Summit in Bangkok and both agreed the relationship needed work.
2: Thanks, Ada. Let's turn out at Caixin Global Managing Editor Doug Young to chat about ba- some of what he's been working on. So, Doug, we're going to talk about two companies today. One of them we featured last week, Didi Chuxing, uh, and its travails with its controversial carpooling service, Hitch, when it's relaunch of that service. Uh, but today we are talking about Didi's potential IPO and other matters. So staying first with Didi, what occasions you're writing about them again this week?
0: Yeah, I wrote about Didi because, actually because of the hitch issue, but looking more more broadly at Didi and, and at Taishin, we actually did our cover story on the broader issue of is the shared economy bubble bursting and, and Didi is sort of really at the, the center of China's shared economy companies. I mean, Uber was sort of one of the pioneers of the whole idea uh, and Didi is their counterpart here in China. So uh, th- this whole story is, is interesting. It looks at, well, look what's happened in the US. Uh, WeWork, Uber, and Lyft have all just plummeted in in market value. Uh, Uber and, and Lyft have both lost about 40% of their market value since they did their IPOs. And WeWork was even worse. I think they lost about 80% of their market value, or at least of their most recent market value. Uh, they're not publicly traded. But anyway, they lost a lot too. So the question is, well, where does Didi fit into all this? Because uh, they're basically in the same business, uh, certainly as Uber and Lyft. And you know, my conclusion is that this company is probably way overvalued. They're in a little bit of a different position from Uber and Lyft in that they don't need the money as urgently, but they probably will need some in the not-too-distant future, and they're also losing money. I looked at the, you know their net loss. It was, it was roughly the same as Uber's net loss last year. So if you look at the valuations, uh, DD, at least the, the latest valuation I could find, which actually is in Uber's latest earnings report and it was about 52 billion dollars. If you look at Uber, that company is only worth about forty-three billion dollars, according to uh, the latest stock valuation. So I think something's a little out of whack there. You know, I mean Uber's a bigger company; it's probably a bit better run than DD, and it's certainly much more diversified. So I think first there was Uber, then Lyft, then WeWork. Could the next one be DD? so Doug,
2: what do you think Didi's prospects actually are i mean one reason it might be very different uh, than the situation with uber is that uber has a major competitor in the market or at least in its biggest market in the u.s uh, in in the form of lyft and they compete you know in other markets as well but Didi is sort of alone in the field in china aren't they
0: Well, I think Didi right now, you you say they have no major competitor, but they actually do have competitors in, in, there's a company called Dida, and they're in Beijing, there's uh, this company called Shouqi, which is run by one of the taxi companies, and they do have the taxi companies. You know, uh, right now, their regular car service is slightly priced above, you know, their private car service is priced slightly above taxis. So there's not a whole lot of room for them to raise prices. I think their marketing expenses are probably still fairly high. And they're probably operating in a lot of cities where they're just not profitable. So maybe they have to think about adjusting their business model. Uh, some of these smaller towns probably are much more price sensitive. They don't have the economies of scale. But you're right. I think DD has got to look at you know finding profits in the not too distant future. And and there may not be a whole lot of place to do that. Like I say, they'll have to just look and see which markets are profitable. And, you know, maybe maybe raise their prices as well. But uh, unlike the U.S., where taxis tend to be more expensive than uh, Uber's cars here in China, it's the opposite. Uh, Didi is actually more expensive now than most taxis because taxis here are relatively cheap. So they're going to really they're gonna have to do a bit of looking around to find some some profitable way to operate.
2: So if you were running the show, would you advise a near term IPO for Didi?
0: The answer to that is is most definitely no. Because look at what happened to Uber and Lyft. They did IPOs and and their stock, like I said, is both down about forty percent. So, the public is clearly not that interested in these companies right now. Their best bet is probably to try and find you know for their next funding round to find another private equity backer. But that that company is probably going to demand a lower valuation as well because they're going to turn around and look at Uber and say, hey. Uber's only worth $43 billion. Why should we be paying for a stake in you at the valuation of whatever I said it was? I think $52 billion. So I think they're going to have to go back to you know, private equity market, but they're probably going to have to go back at a lower valuation.
2: Well, let's turn now to a company that has taken more actionable steps to be listed uh, for a second time, actually.
0: Right. The second story is sort of a story that everybody's been waiting for, which is Alibaba had been, well, they hadn't ever said anything, but reports started getting out probably like a couple months ago that the company was looking at a second listing in Hong Kong. Right now it's listed in New York. And what happened this past week was Alibaba finally came out and and told everybody, yeah, we're, we're doing a listing and they gave terms for the listing. They're, they're, it looks like they're going to try and raise about $13 billion plus or minus. It'll basically just be a concurrent listing with their listing in New York. Uh, the the shares will trade in sync with the New York price. So Because if they don't trade in sync, then you get what's called arbitrage and people will buy the stock in the market where it's cheaper and then sell it into the market where it's more expensive. So that's basically the deal. The 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 funding amount is like I say was the big question mark, but now everybody knows it's about 13 billion dollars.
2: Now, is the motivation behind this second listing here more about fundraising or as I suspect more about getting in Beijing's good graces?
0: Yeah, I think it's I think you're you're exactly right. I think uh and there's a third element. One is fundraising, which I don't think the company needs that much. Um there's a little bit of backstory that Alibaba had actually originally wanted to list in Hong Kong, but uh at the time Hong Kong didn't allow the share structure. It's like this partnership structure. They call it dual-class share structure, where some shareholders have more voting rights than others. Uh, And Hong Kong didn't allow this. Basically, the structure gives management much more voting power at the company than ordinary shareholders. Uh, So Hong Kong has since changed that. So now it's okay for Alibaba to do it. And I think Alibaba wanted to do it originally, like you say, goodwill with Beijing, Um, And now there's also the second element of the, the fact that the Hong Kong Stock Exchange is linked with Shanghai and Shenzhen. So this would actually be finally making, you know, Alibaba shares accessible to mainland stock buyers because they can buy Hong Kong listed shares through this Shanghai and Shenzhen Stock Exchange Connect, which has always been sort of the irony is most of China's biggest Internet names are listed offshore, so only foreigners can sort of enjoy their huge profits and, and you know, stock gains, uh, whereas Chinese buyers couldn't. But now with this new listing in Hong Kong, mainlanders will finally get a chance to buy Alibaba stock.
2: And finally, how big is a $13 billion
0: listing in Hong Kong in the context of the last few years? It would be the definitely the biggest this year um, and it would have been the biggest last year too. I think the biggest last year was one by a company called China Tower, which is basically a cellular tower operator um, and I think the amount they raised was less than ten billion dollars, so thirteen billion. It's not chump change. It's not record-breaking. Alibaba actually holds the world record for biggest IPO of all time, which was its New York IPO, which raised about $25 billion in 2014.
2: Well, Doug, we'll check back in with you as usual next week. And thanks for catching us up on these two upcoming initial public offerings. Okay. Thanks, Kaiser. And that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. The Tsaihian Sinica Business Brief is powered by Sub China and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Tanner Brown, with stories from the staff of Tsaihian Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Li Xin of Tsaihian Global and to Spring and Autumn and Wu Fei for the music. Be sure to check out all the other shows about contemporary China in the ever-expanding Sinica network, and be sure to follow the news from China every day at Sub China. Subscribe to our newsletter at Take care.